Before we dive into the show today, I actually wanted to tell you guys about a special that we're running in our Macros Inc. shop. So if you want to get all your Macros Inc. gear so you can have what we're calling a hot macro summer, go check out our shop at macrosinc.net slash shop and use the code SUMMER2021 to get 10% off all your apparel. That means hoodies, uh, fanny packs, backpacks, t-shirts, tanks, Everything you can think of, we've got in the store. So go support us. Go to macrozinc.net slash shop and use summer 2021 to get 10% off. Welcome back to the show. This is episode number 75. Today, we're going to be talking about whether you should measure your resting metabolism, the fact that many issues within a business come down to communication, why we rationalize things post facto to make it seem like it was the right thing to do, and why you should create the type of environment that you want to live in. Let's get into the show. All right, first up on the show today is our nutrition insight, and it's really more of a physiology insight than it is a nutrition insight. And really what I wanted to do was kind of address the idea of whether you should actually get your resting metabolism measured, right? Should you go to a laboratory or a clinic and actually do one of the gas analysis to actually see like, hey, what is my resting metabolic rate from like a measured laboratory perspective? And I want to give you guys a little bit of insight into why I don't recommend it for almost anybody, right? There's some rare cases, which I'll maybe talk about. But for most people, these tests don't really give you any additional insights. And oftentimes, they lead to more problems than they cause. So let me give you my insights on why that is. When we think about what most people are looking for in kind of a health, wellness, weight loss journey is, they're just really trying to lose weight and improve their health. One of the best ways to help people lose weight is to help them find what a calorie deficit for them is. And really what that comes down to is trying to figure out, on average, what is your total daily caloric expenditure, right? Of that total daily caloric expenditure, you have really four main components. You have your resting metabolic rate, which is probably one of the, it's, for most people, it's the largest component. Um, two, it's your thermic effect of food. So you got to spend calories to burn calories or process calories. Then you have your two types of physical activity, your exercise and your non-exercise activity. So when we like estimate, Hey, here's maybe some starting points for you where you should be to lose weight in terms of a caloric intake. Really what we're doing is we're trying to estimate, okay, Let's say we have some estimating equations that get you within 10 to 15% of what your actual expenditure is. And then we actually are going to make a pretty big deficit on that. So you start losing weight from jump. So let's say we have a client, they come in, they want to lose 20 pounds, right? So that's probably, you know, three to six months of weight loss they need to go through to get to that goal. So we're probably going to set them at a 700 calorie a day deficit off the bat. That's just kind of a rough estimate. So let's say the calculator that we utilize to kind of get a rough starting point says, hey, you burn 2,000 calories a day, right? Let's just say that's the case. And it's like, okay, you're going to eat maybe 13, 1,400 calories for the first couple of weeks while we're trying to estimate exactly what your deficit is at. Now, the estimating equations, when you look at them, the good ones, especially the ones that we utilize, 
Um, I actually have a couple papers pulled up that have actually looked at measured versus estimated. And most of them are within about 10 to 15% on the resting metabolic rate, right? Most of the error comes from overestimation. A very small percent um, comes from underestimation. So let's say you're off by 15%. Let's say it overestimates your resting metabolic rate by 15%. So let's say your RMR is 1,400 calories a day and it overestimates it by 15%. What is that? Um, that's like 175, 200 calories a day. It overestimates it. So maybe your true deficit that we've set you up with is closer to 500 rather than 700. So regardless of whether you are perfectly accurate with your resting metabolic rate or you've estimated pretty close, you're still in a calorie deficit and you're still losing weight. Let's say we're on the other side of the equation. We have somebody who's trying to add some lean muscle tissue, right? So they're in a bulking phase or they're you know, in a gain phase. And that person, we're going to put them in a surplus of 300 to 400 calories a day because that's kind of the ideal window. Okay, let's say the rest the the energy equations have also overest or uh, overestimated their expenditure. Okay, now they have a slightly smaller um, or they have a slightly greater surplus. Okay, we'll track that for the first two weeks and then we'll make a small adjustment. Now let's say that same person went and got a resting metabolic rate test, and we. And if you look at the scientific literature on how accurate those are, let's say those are within 5 to 10%, right? So let's say there's the 5% error. Okay, well, now we're roughly 75 to 100 calories off. So you see the margin of difference in the actual application doesn't make any difference. Because in the weight loss scenario, instead of a 700-calorie deficit, they're at a 600. Whereas if we just estimate it, it's maybe, four, it's maybe 550 to 500. On the surplus side... It's maybe 50 calories. And within somebody's daily tracking, 50 to 100 calories a day is really within kind of the error of what most people do anyway. So the actual utility from lab to application is really lost based on just the way the math works out and the way human behavior works out and what's actually meaningful and applicable in the real world. Now, the reason that they can cause some issues with people is... A lot of times resting metabolic rate studies, if they come back and they say, hey, your resting metabolism is lower than is expected based on estimating equations, people will have this idea of like, hey, weight loss is going to be really tough for me because I have a slow metabolism. And that's really not ever been shown to be accurate um, and never really been shown to actually be predictive. So if you take people who have a lower than expected resting metabolic rate, the likelihood that they're going to lose less weight than somebody with a, quote, normal resting metabolic rate, there really appears to be no difference. There's so many other things that drive the weight loss that that resting metabolic rate piece doesn't really matter. So in the actual application is these resting metabolic rate tests, while they may give you a slightly more accurate, right, maybe 5% more accurate than the estimating equations, you're still going to be utilizing estimating thermic effect of food, exercise activity, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and then you're going to be estimating how accurate somebody is on their um, their reporting, and you're going to be building skills and tools around that. And that exact number of what resting metabolic rate is, whether the 
the estimating equation you use to kind of get somebody started is 200 calories off or it's spot on doesn't make a huge amount of difference for 90%, 95% of the population. Some of the people what may actually matter, very high-level athletes where you're trying to get a better understanding of like, when I, need, when I have margins that are so razor thin, does that actually matter? It may. Some of the more interesting data in there is actually like the, what is their resting um, metabolism in terms of carbohydrate to fat oxidation? How do they respond to exercise? Those are the things where those tests actually become more meaningful. But most of us aren't high-level athletes like that. Most of us don't need that type of data. And if anything, they they often detract from what we really need. So that's my thoughts on why you shouldn't get resting metabolic rate studies done on yourself. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we'll jump into the next segment of the show. All right, on to business insights. So I'm fortunate slash maybe a little bit crazy in the fact that, uh, you know, I've got some experience across multiple industries, either presently or in my previous careers. You know, I've been in biotech. I've been in academic medicine. I've been in the coaching space. I've been in the education space. I've been in the automotive space. I've been in the real estate development space. Um, So I've, I've just kind of been around a little bit. And a few things have happened in the last week. Um, I, I would say not like major issues, but just things that you have to kind of sort through in any time you're involved in, in a business. And the core issue with all of these things that have come up is people's ability to communicate. And it really comes down to two things. I think we talked a little bit about this um, last week on the podcast of like you have to have respect for people and you have to be able to openly communicate. And so there's so many times that when you get into a situation, things get escalated beyond where they need to. Um, And I think the phrase is you make a mountain out of a molehill because people are afraid to actively communicate and take responsibility for what they can in a conversation. You know, it's, hey, what is everybody's perspective? What do I need out of this situation? Can the other person provide what they need or what I need? can I provide what I need? And if not, how do I just move forward in kind of a really mutually respective way, um, mutually respectful way, and try to end up with the desired result that I need and the other person needs? I think a lot of times we fail to communicate because it's difficult to have conversations. And that leads to people finding other routes to get to where they want to go without actually just communicating with the people that they need it with. Um, and it was interesting. I was having a conversation with my wife about this yesterday. And one of the things that I notice about myself is whenever I'm in the middle of a conversation, whether it's with a spouse, a family member, a business partner, an employee, is trying to find space in those conversations to think through what you're saying, why you're saying it, and what the what the intention of it is, like how is it going to land and try to try to work out multiple different ways of saying the same thing in your head before you actually say it. So you can try to find the best way of saying it. I think about, you know, conversations much like you would have an email exchange, right? A lot of times you'll get kind of a heated charged email and it'll come in and you'll want to immediately fire off a response. 
In reality, what I think a lot of us do or should do is kind of take it, read it, reflect on it, maybe write your answer, don't send it for a bit, come back and review it, edit it, write three or four versions of the email, think about how it's going to land, and then after you know maybe a day and some reflection, you send it. We have a lot of space in our conversations to do that. We get uncomfortable when there's quiet or space in a conversation, but if somebody says something to you and you immediately respond, the real kind of observation there is you weren't really sitting and processing the full scope of what somebody was saying and trying to figure out, okay, what is the best response to this? What it really comes across is like, hey, you heard a part of what they're saying initially. You were formulating a response, and then the second they finished, you were, bang, you were back into it. So when you're working through a lot of those conversations, especially in like whether it's business meetings, investment meetings, uh, you know, personal relationships, giving some space in that conversation and allowing yourself to kind of think through those responses really allows you to become a more effective communicator. Now, it may be a little uncomfortable that there's pauses here and there. There's a little bit of quiet space and that you have to fill that with like thinking on the fly and you have to show somebody else that you're trying to think and reason through it is a little strange, um, but it's always very helpful. So business insight is many issues within a business come down to communication and give yourself some space to think and actually really sort through those answers. So uh, another quick break here, and then we're going to wrap up the last section of the podcast. All right. What am I learning today? This is more of an observation, maybe just uh, about myself and just from some conversations I've had with people over the last week is we as humans do a great job of rationalizing things post facto. So kind of like after you've done something to make it seem like it was the right thing to do, right? How many of us will set an alarm to go to the gym and then we won't. And then later that day we'll be like, oh yeah, you know, like I really needed a rest day. So I, I took it or you'll go and you'll kind of fall off your diet plan. You know, you're at a party and you'll kind of have the extra piece of cake or the second drink You'll be like, oh, yeah, like, I really just needed a mental recovery day, so I did it. Um, And we do a lot of rationalization about most of the decisions that we make in life to make it seem to us like it was the right thing to do. And this was one of those concepts that I was introduced to in graduate school. I was taking a, a moral reasoning class, and I still remember this very vividly. There was kind of a question on a test is, what's the difference between reasoning and rationalization and kind of long story short, and there's a lot of technical answers in there, but when we reason, we think things through before we do something and we try to arrive at the best decision for us. Rationalization is we do something and then we try to rationalize why that was the best thing for us. And you can see those are two totally different things and they lead to totally different outcomes. So that's what I'm learning today. Daily Win, we have hit 75 episodes this last year. I think we are like 180 days, something like that, into the year, maybe 190. I don't know. We're basically just over halfway through the year, and we're on pace to hit maybe 140 episodes this year. But our my original goal was 100 episodes in a year. 
which was basically one every two and a half, three days. We're going to crush that goal. I'm super pumped about that. So this is episode number 75. Episode 100, we'll have a giant party. I don't know what that party is going to be because it'll just be me in my office. Maybe I'll have like some champagne in here. I don't know. That's that's probably what we're going to do. And then the daily learning lesson, um, create the type of environment you want to live in. And this kind of, there's really two fold to that, maybe threefold to that. One is create the like living space, like the actual physical environment you want to live in. Like build your home office. If you work from home, the way that you want to do it, build your office, your cubicle at work on the environment you want to live in. Um, actually build your physical environment. The other one is create your daily environment, right? If you feel like you going to an office where you work for somebody else is not the type of environment where you thrive in, you're going to have to create the life that allows you to work from home, that allows you to be self-employed, that allows you to do all those things. It's never going to just happen. You're going to have to create it. And then the last piece is create the kind of emotional, mental environment you want to be in. And there's kind of two ways to do this, or there's two aspects to it. There's probably a lot of ways to do it, but there's kind of two aspects of it. One is the conversations you have and the mental space that gets occupied by you in a given day is mostly under your control. Here's a good example. Um, I have a colleague of mine. He's in the same space as us. Um, He's been a, a very successful entrepreneur. And one of his kind of tenants is when he's in his house with his family, they don't talk about other people at all. There's no gossip. There's no discussion of anybody else because when you're in the family, they care about two things. One is the nuclear family of what's important to them and what they talk about. And two, big ideas, big discussions, and what changes the world. So they don't really spend the time. Their environment is cultivating making their family better and making the world better. There's no discussion of like other people, right? Because they they realize they control those things. And then the other one is the emotional relationships that you have are both a product of what you put into it and then what you allow. And so how do you create those emotional environments around the relationships around you? So that's the daily learning lesson. Create the type of environment you want to live in. Um, from kind of your like immediate structural environment, the type of work life you live, and then what your kind of emotional and mental family life is. So that's it for today. This is episode number 75. I'm Dr. Brad. I'm out of here. I'll see you guys on the next episode. <laughs>